Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. And so today as we begin a new series, I want to speak to you on the topic of renewal, of revival. All right. And maybe the Lord allowed me to get sick last week right after coming back so that I could deliver this message on Pentecost Sunday because what better day to preach it than Pentecost Sunday. (laughs) But here's, now you guys know me. I'm not, at least this is how I think of myself. I'm not an over the top, super exuberant type person. And yet, so hear me when I say this. This is what I believe the Lord's saying. I believe the Lord is telling us that right now, The time has come to rebuild, to restore, to renew that which has been broken down in our worship, in our community, in our relationships, in our society even. And so we're going to be studying a moment of rebuilding and revival in scripture in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so this is the series that we're going into. It's called Road to Renewal. So the first thing that you need to know about Ezra and Nehemiah is that they're actually not two books, but one book. They're written as one book. And up until the 1500s in Hebrew Bibles, it was one scroll. And so it's one book and the structure of the book neatly kind of breaks down into five episodes. And so over the course of this, we've got five weeks in this series, we're going to be looking at each of these episodes. So not going chapter by chapter per se, but, but section by section. And, you know, if you've read either of these books at all ever, um, you've probably come across them from a, you know, five leadership principles from Nehemiah, you know, because, the, you know, if we know anything about Nehemiah, it's that he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Now, I would bet that very few of us know anything really about Ezra um, or anything else that Nehemiah did. And so there's a lot here that I think there is here for us to discover and that the Lord wants to, to teach us through these books that are in a lot of ways quite unfamiliar. So I want to give you a little bit of context before we read from Ezra chapter 1. Ezra picks up where Second Chronicles leaves off. And Second Chronicles, in fact, the first few sentences are exactly the ending of Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles ends on this note of absolute tragedy. The unthinkable had happened. The nation of Israel that God had called to be his instrument of uh, redemption throughout the world, that had seen the, the glory days of David and Solomon and the building of the temple and all the, the riches and honor of the nations coming into Israel, had rejected its calling and become just as evil and wicked and rebellious as the nations that it was meant to be a light to. And so God sends Israel into exile as a discipline, as a a judgment for its sin. And they're taken off into exile in Babylon. And now after 70 years of exile, just as the prophets had foretold, Israel has the chance to return to Jerusalem. So with that in mind, let's read the beginning of the book of Ezra. And the the message today is going to be focusing on the first six chapters, but we're not going to be reading all six chapters. All right. So I'm going to interject a couple comments as we read this, just the first seven verses. It says in the first year 
of Cyrus, king of Persia. By the way, Cyrus, king of Persia, we believe may have been the stepson of Queen Esther from the book of Esther, which is interesting. Um, That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And he's talking about Jeremiah 31 there primarily. It says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, uh, which means it was binding. And we actually have archaeological evidence of cylinders uh, such as this proclamation. And it says this, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of heaven, uh, of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So just note there that this is a voluntary return. And it says in verse four, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So this is today what would be called reparations. Uh, And this is actually also what happened as Israel was sent out of Egypt. And so this is being set up as a second exodus. It says in verse five, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And just notice there that both they rose up and God stirred them. And it says, all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with good, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. So that casts our mind back to Daniel chapter 1, 70 years earlier, where Nebuchadnezzar had uh, looted Jerusalem and conquered it and taken the vessels away. So this is the return. Okay, so this first episode of Ezra Nehemiah, it takes place in chapters 1 through 6. And it's telling us about the restoration of the temple. It's the restoration of worship through the leadership of Zerubbabel and Yeshua, Joshua. And so this isn't, it doesn't even start about Ezra or Nehemiah. Uh, It's a different set of leaders. And actually this is the first of three great moments of revival in this book. We're going to be looking at all of them. And and as we do, we're going to see that there's this pattern that keeps repeating itself through these moments of revival. So if you were here a couple weeks ago, our guest speaker here in Bethlehem was Pastor John Goyette, and he left us with a few copies of the book that he authored, which is called The Power of Return. And it's a study of revivals through scripture. And so Pastor John, if you're listening, I found your book very helpful for this study. Um, and, and what he does in the book is that he, he looks at the fact that there's this reliable pattern of revival throughout scripture. He identifies 12 moments of revival throughout the Hebrew scripture. And so the first thing that we need to know about revival is this. Revival is not a historical anomaly. It's a consistent Holy Spirit pattern for how he brings new life to, to, to a community. 
Revival is not a historical anomaly. It's a consistent Holy Spirit pattern. So not only do you see revivals happening throughout scripture, but you see them happening throughout church history. And when you, students of revival will point out that there's shared preconditions whenever you see revival coming out. And there's shared characteristics in most every revival, even though all of them are different. It's never the same way twice. And at the simplest level, what Pastor John lays out in his book is that this is the simplest pattern of revival. The people return to God. God returns to the people. And the result is new life. So Zechariah 3, uh, 1.3 says this, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. Return to me, that I may return to you. Now, I grew up in the Pentecostal slash charismatic branch of the church. And whenever you talk about revival, I've also swum in more conservative branches of the church, uh, in Anglicanism and Reformed circles. And, and whenever you talk about revival, you, you tend to get one of two responses. So if you're talking to a Pentecostal slash charismatic, it's kind of like, oh, revival. I love revival. We're having one next week. <laughs> Or if you're talking to a more uh, conservative-oriented person, um, they'll say, oh, I love, uh, you know, studying the Great Awakening. The one revival that was, you know, really trustworthy. And you say, well, what about Pentecost? And they say, yeah, well, you know, that one's kind of a gateway drug. <sighs> if you're not careful, you start speaking in tongues and that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> so it, <laughs> When you talk about revival, you often get these kind of two extremes. You, you, you can get the sense from one camp that revival is pretty much a human thing that we stir it up, we whip it up, and we can plan for it. And it's, you know, you kind of get the impression revival is just a, a type of service that happens at night in a field in a tent, you know? <laughs> of course, I'm being very reductionistic, but... On the other hand, you also get this other extreme that seems to think that revival is this completely, utterly mysterious, sovereign thing that human beings play no part of. All that we can do is hope that God might do it one day. And so the reality, of course, is somewhere in between. And and this is how I want to sum it up, that revival is a sovereign work through human means. It's a sovereign work through human means. And it's very much in line with God's MO. When you read how God creates the world and how he operates in history, he doesn't use human beings as puppets. He prefers to use them as partners. Why? Because God created beings in his image that were destined to be his ambassadors on the earth and ambassador, you know, um, free loving Children who are your ambassadors glorify God so much more than a bunch of mindless uh, puppets running around. And so God always uh, works towards partnership with his people. That's why he covenants with his people. And so what we learn through revival, when you study revival in scripture, when you study revival in the history of the church, is that, yes, we can't make revival happen. You can't just whip it up and stir it up. You can't make revival happen. But we do play a part in preparing the conditions for it. 
And it's also interesting, we seem to be pretty good at putting an end to it. So we can't start it, but we're pretty good at ending it. (laughs) But we, you see, is that God partners with his people to prepare the soil for revival to happen. And so you might be asking, well, why is revival necessary at all? And you might assume that revival is necessary for, you know, the expansion of the church, these great moments of conversion and thousands of people come to faith. And that is one of the effects that you tend to see in, in great revivals. And that's true. But you also have to ask, when you say revival, what is it that's being revived? Because it's not just the world. It's the church that's being revived. It's the church that's having the Holy Spirit breathe new life into it. And so God's people, what you see is that God's people go through cycles of growth and stagnation, where the only path back from stagnation, it's just like the life cycle of an organization. If you're a business person, you probably heard of that. The life cycle of an organization, you have a foundation and it's driven by passion. And then you have, you have the organization where you start to put structure around it. And then you have institutionalization and then you have fossilization. And the only way back is to the beginning. The only way to restart is to go back to that, the founding things. And so you see the same life cycle in the church that, that you have periods of growth and passion and they, there's the cycle of decline and then the Holy Spirit has to bring you back to the beginning. Otherwise, you face fossilization. And we see that all around us and it's, it's a very real thing that unless we're continually relying on the breath and the energy and the power of the Holy Spirit to take us back to the foundations in God, that's the only place we're going. Because if it's only in human strength, there's not a lot of juice there. (laughs) And so the church needs new life from time to time to return to her first love. You see that even in in the time between Paul writing the book, uh, the letter to the Ephesians, to the book that John wrote, Revelation, and the letter of to the church in Ephesus, and it says, "Return to your first love," right? And so even even in the earliest days, you see this cycle of of renewal that continually needs to happen. And I really believe that we. Yes, the church in general in our nation, but we as a church are in a moment where we need to be crying out for God to give us a new breath of life, a new touch of his power and and Holy Spirit. And so, you know, seeking revival is not just for those few people who are really into it, because there's always those few people. (laughs) And you know what I mean? I really believe it's, it's for everybody in the right season. And so, Revival, it's, it's not everyday life. It's not like we can expect that kind of mountaintop thing every single day of your Christian life. But it is a pattern that we see, that we should expect, that we should prepare for, and we should partner with God in returning to him so that he can return to us. And so in, in preparing for uh, the leadership transition and the, the celebration of Trish and Grubb's retirement. There's been a lot of work going on to, to tell, to remember the story of this church and the history of this church. And I was just listening to part of it yesterday again. And, you know, this church was born out of a great time of revival. 
born out of what is now called the charismatic movement in the, in the 70s. And many of you in this room came to faith during that time, as did my own grandmother and, grand, uh, and, and parents. And so this, this church was born out of that time. And then you fast forward and it grew massively in the time of the renewal in the 1990s. And many of us also came to faith during that time. And I think it's time for a new one. I think it's time for, for a, a new touch and a new generation to ask God, look, you've, you did it twice already in the short history of this church. Lord, do it again. Do it again. And so from these six chapters of Ezra, and like I said, we're not going to read them all, but I would encourage you, these two books that are one book, it's, it's not long, go home and read it. Over these next five weeks, spend some time just meditating on it, reading through it. And you'll find that the Lord is going to speak to you as we're studying this all together. And so I want to give you, out of these six chapters, I want to suggest six things that we can learn and apply. And then what I want to do is simply invite you to pray and ask the Lord for renewal. Okay? And so, is that all right? Okay. One person thought it was okay, so it's good. I'm going to stand on that word. Okay. (laughs) All right. So you'll be able to follow these best if you're following the YouVersion app that's got the notes in it, the Bible app. But six things. Okay, so number one, revival cannot take place without return. This is what we see in in chapters one and two. Revival cannot take place without return. So in the passage, we read King Cyrus. uh, He creates the opportunity politically, but it's God stirring his heart and God stirs the heart's of the the leaders. But you have to notice the people themselves still had to return. The people themselves still had to rise up and return. And this is where the Lord is saying, return to me and I will return to you. Now, the sad thing is, notice not everybody went. If you read chapter two, we find out it's not even close. Only about 50,000 people of all the nation of Israel that was taken into captivity, actually chose to return. And most of them were for only two of the tribes. And so you have to think, you know, why didn't everyone go back? After almost two generations of of longing and of being exiled and longing for home, why didn't they all choose to go back? Now, on one level, we have to speculate a little bit because we don't know exactly, but we know that for some, if we're charitable, for some, it was their calling to be in Babylon and to influence. You think of Daniel, you think of Esther, and we can assume for many others, though, that they missed their calling. They missed their invitation to return. After years of living in exile, it seems as though They'd lost their longing for home. They became comfortable in Babylon. And here's the thing I think that the Lord wants to tell us through through that, that as bad as it is being in exile, there's something even worse, which is to forget that you're in exile. To feel so at home in your exile that you think you're home. And all the while, God's inviting you back. Come back, come back home. Come back to where your heart belongs, to where I created you to be. And you say, no, my life's full enough already, God. I'm good good here. 
I've made my home in Babylon and I'm quite comfortable. Now, that doesn't mean that these people were completely apostate. The synagogue system began during the period in Babylon. You know, there was, there was great work to, to maintain the scriptural, you know, sources and all of those things. And yet you see only 50,000 responded and went home. So as bad as being an exile is, it's far worse to forget that you're an exile and forget that's actually what the church is called also. And so I want to ask you, do you feel a tug on your heart to return to God? To experience more of him, to, to get back to your first love. And if so, James 4, 8 echoes uh, the words uh, of Zechariah, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And if he's stirring your heart, Come back to him because that's the first step in revivals, the the return to him. All right, so that's number one. Secondly, as we read chapter three, what we see is that revival cannot take place without rekindling. They're all going to begin with R, all right? It's a tip. Revival cannot take place without rekindling. What do I mean by that? Well, the first thing that you see Zerubbabel Uh, do after returning was that he restores the altar and they begin practicing what the law says. They begin the the sacrifices. uh, They begin the feast. They celebrate the feast of booths and the law and they begin rekindling their worship, rekindling their affection for God. And and remember they, the reason that they were going back was to rebuild the temple, right? So, They hadn't even started on the temple yet, but they didn't wait until the temple was finished before they started seeking God. They didn't start, they didn't wait until all the ducks were in order, until all the, you know, the savings were full for all the, and and all the, the cedars from Lebanon had arrived in the shipment. They hadn't, they didn't wait until everything was in line before they started rekindling the worship of God. They started with what they had. It says that Zerubbabel and Joshua made a beginning. They made a start. And at New Covenant, this is what I want to speak to us. At times, I hear a tendency to look into our basket of resources that we say in our hands and we say, Lord, well, we've only got these few loaves and these few fish. We've only got these few volunteers, these few resources, these few rooms. And so we look maybe at times past when there was, you know, uh, more volunteers or there was more uh, opportunity in certain ways. Or maybe we look at other churches and we say, well, that's, that works for them because of what they have. Or that worked for us then because of the leader that we had or whatever we had. But we can't really do those things anymore now. We don't, we have to wait until things are in order before we can try and do those things. And so what I believe right now is that it's time to begin rekindling our affection, begin rekindling our first love right where we are, not looking for something more before we make a start, but making a start with what we have in our hands. And so if you're in a ministry and, we're, and you're struggling for volunteers, I hear you. We're all feeling that. Uh, that's, that's not just us. That's the church uh, all over. But the question is, are we going to wait until we've got everything we need before we think we can worship God? Or are we going to worship him with what we have? Are we going to give him everything? You can't give what you don't have. You can give what you do have. And that's all God wants. That's all God asks for. All right. And so 
We may not have the temple that we want yet, <laughs> but an atmosphere for, for revival is created when we simply take what we have and we begin to rekindle a love for God with it. And so this is actually part of the pattern of, of revival. One of the things that you see both in scripture and you see it throughout church history is that revival is brought about by uh, simple things. It's what Jonathan Edwards called extraordinary prayer. Prayer doesn't take a lot of resources. It's not fancy stuff. It's just a hunger for God to worship him, to see more of him. And that's, it's a hunger that begins to rekindle our first love. And so revival is precipitated by return and by rekindling. And then the third thing that we see as you carry on in chapter three, immediately after they, they begin uh, worship at the altar, they begin the celebration of the feast. Immediately after what you see is revival always meets resistance. Revival always meets resistance. And there's two types of resistance in these chapters. The first is the internal resistance of discouragement. So they begin building the temple and they're laying the the foundation stone and the younger generation is saying, yes, finally. And the older generation, it says, begins to, to break out in tears because they're recalling what once was the, the glory of the temple and discouragement threatened to set in as if to say, this will never be like the glory days. And so that's the first level of resistance. But then of course, uh, when you read in chapter four, there's also this immense external resistance that comes in and the enemy begins to throw every possible obstacle at God's people. And they eventually, they get shut down by the government, (laughs) by uh, bogus, you know, court claims by red tape. And so it's not just modern democracies that have these problems. They essentially didn't have the zoning that they needed. And so, <laughs> so you have all this external resistance. And, and, but here's the thing. What you see through the history of revivals in scripture and in church history is that resistance is not, resistance is part of the process of revival. It's part of the pattern. It's not a sign that it's wrong or that God isn't in it. It's simply part of the process and we should actually expect it. I received a prophecy from Denny Kramer the last time I got one. And he said, Ian, you're going to have all these plans. I see you looking at blueprints. You can have all these plans. And God says, I'm going to, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to do something completely different. I'm like, gee, thanks, Denny. And you know, but (laughs) part of what anyone who's involved in the site, in the process of revival is to realize when you meet resistance, when things have to switch up, that's not, that's not God's, it's not a sign that this is not of God. It's actually part of the resistance because if God's moving, of course the enemy's going to want to stop it. If you're not facing any resistance in your so-called move of God, you know, you have to question whether you're doing the enemy any damage, right? And so we should expect it. When people begin returning to God, the enemy is going to do everything in his power to prevent that. And so that brings us to the fourth point that we see at the beginning of chapter five, which is that revival always needs reinforcement. It always needs reinforcement. This is a great chat. If you are gifted in prophecy, you got to read Ezra chapter five. I'll read the first two verses here. In every move of revival, you've got that internal and external resistance. And then chapter four, we find out the work was actually stopped for 15 years. 
Imagine that. 15 years, they're tied up in red tape. But chapter five, verse one, it says, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So revival was resumed and reinforced by standing on God's prophetic word to them. And I think this is helpful for us in two ways. First of all, in, in, in times of, one of the criticisms of revival and renewal is that it's so emotional. It's so, it can so easily veer off course into emotionalism and often into heterodoxy and even heresy. And that's a real danger. And so for any authentic move of revival, it has to be reinforced. It has to be built on the foundation of scripture. Otherwise, it veers off into all sorts of weird things. And you have to remember, if you look at the history of new religious movements or cults, they're, they're, they mostly all began in times of uh, great revival. Great authentic revivals and also spinoffs into heresy. And so prophetic reinforcement is necessary for that. But I think there's a second thing. It's that Standing on God's prophetic word, it also helps us work through the resistance, the internal, the external resistance, because you've got a leg to stand on to know that you're pursuing God. When Peter stepped out of the water, he asked, when Peter stepped out of the boat to walk in the water, he said, Jesus, give me the word. And then he walked. And then, you know, he started looking more at the resistance rather than standing on the word. And if you've got a word, if God tells you, go, you've got enough to go on. That gives you the fire that you need to actually push through the resistance that you meet. And so when we're anchored in scripture, when we're waging war with the prophecies that we've received, and I love to to share and remind us of the prophecies that this church has received. I was actually going back into the archives. We've got archives of prophetic words for this church going back to 1980, I think. There's hundreds of them. I could only read a, a small section of it. I wish I could share some of them with you now. I think I will over the course of these next few weeks. But it's amazing to look back 20 years and see, oh man, we're doing that right now. It's so cool. And so New Covenant, I want to uh, I, I say these things and ask you to join me in returning to God so that he returns to us and, and know that we're going to face some discouragement. We're going to face some opposition but also know that if we stand on his word and we stand in the words that he's given to us prophetically, we've got what we need to go where he's telling us to go. All right, the fifth thing. Revival always bears exponential results. Exponential results. You see this in chapter six. So the work had stopped for 15 years and uh, they begin the work on the basis of the prophetic word not on the basis of zoning. They continue the prophetic word and then they have the courage to actually write to the government and say, you need to look at your archives again because we actually have permission to do this. God told us to do this and your king told us to do this. And so they appeal to King Darius. It's a new regime. And this incredible thing happens, right? Not only does King Darius give them permission to start again, King Darius says, oh yeah, and all the people who were opposed to you, they're going to pay the bill. That's an exponential result. 
It's a result. And what I mean by that is it's a result that goes well beyond what you could naturally expect from human efforts. That's one definition of grace is where you see multiplication that goes far beyond what you would expect from your, your natural efforts. And so this is, this is what Pastor John referred to, refers to in his book as the second stage of revival. Stage one is the people return to God. Stage two is God returns to the people. And this is really where the revival starts. And he, he returns to his people. He brings new life. Uh, he brings this supernatural abundance, these exponential results. And, and this is, it's not only what you'd call signs and wonders, although that's often a part of it, but it's, it's conversions. It's confession. It's repentance. It's restored families. It's restored city. It's restored even whole societies. If you study the, the Methodist revival, the end of the 1800s uh, in the UK, uh, it had this effect not only did hundreds of thousands of people come to faith, but as a result of that, you also see society completely shifting. Universal education, the system of universal education, that's a result of the Methodist revival. They changed child labor laws. You could argue that the abolition of slavery was one of the knock-on effects of that uh, through the Clapham sect and William Wilberforce. And here's the other thing that I, I love. It, it actually created an atmosphere where it became cool to be compassionate. It started off this whole trend. This is where philanthropy really got its start in the UK. And all of a sudden you've got these Christian uh, businessmen and we still reap the benefits of that today because the Cadbury's, yes, the chocolate family, the Cadbury's are the people that gave Battelle its first building in the UK. And they were there, uh, the, the grandson uh, of Adrian Cambry, sorry, the nephew of Adrian Cambry was there at the celebration. And that is part of the Christian heritage that stretches all the way back to that revival. It changed an entire society. And you can look at other times in history where that's been the case. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> but these are, the, <laughs> these are the kinds of exponential results that, that can come simply when the church of God is revived. And he can do it again, everyone. He's done it before and he can do it again. And that takes us to our very last one here, which is that revival causes us to remember. Because the very last thing that you see in chapter six is that they celebrate the Passover. The temple's finished and they take a moment, they take an entire week to remember. They look back at God's great faithfulness and goodness and they ask God for a new outpouring. And so revival causes us to remember because it causes us to, to remember all of God's faithfulness. And that gives us a new uh, energy, a new faith to believe that he can and will do it again. This is not a historical anomaly. This is not weird for you to desire. This is something that is a natural life cycle in the church and that we should be asking for right now. And so that's what inspires our faith, the remembrance and so the question is, will we return to him? Will we rekindle our first love so that he can return to us? So I gave you warning. I want to I invite you to, to pray. I, wanna, I feel like this demands a response. I'm talking about return. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to respond. And so I want to invite the, the worship team at both campuses 
back up. And as they do, actually the kids are going to be coming back up and joining us because we're a family and this involves our kids too. And so in just a moment, I want to ask you, not yet, wait for the word. Uh, In just a moment, I want to ask you, if you feel the Lord stirring your heart, uh, the Lord stirring your heart to return to him, maybe it's to return to a former joy that you once had and you realize, you know what? I'm not not really living in that joy of my first love that I once had. If you feel the Lord stirring in your heart to join him in what he's doing in this place, then I'm going to invite you to respond by coming to the front for prayer. And it's not that there's anything magical about the front. It's simply a physical response to say, yes, Lord, I want what you're doing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.